Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, online at schwepp.net. Episode 68, Plutarch on Isis and Osiris. Listeners will recall the great Philo of Alexandria, whom we discussed in episodes 56 to 58 of the podcast. Philo, an Alexandrian Jew, read what we now know as the Book of Genesis in Greek, and interpreted this text as concealing deep levels of esoteric meaning. Moses, the lawgiver, of course, delivered straightforward ordinances for the Jews to follow. And the historical account given in the scriptures is, of course, accurate, at least for the most part. Nevertheless, deeper levels of meaning can be found in the text we call Genesis, which give an account of the human soul's journey through right philosophy back to the God from whom she came, all embodied in an early Middle Platonist understanding of of cosmology, the nature of the soul, and so on. Philo's work stands as the single best surviving example of Middle Platonist reading of religion as esoteric philosophy. In this episode, we shall be looking at a text which I think is our second best surviving example of this way of reading, Plutarch's essay on Isis and Osiris. This work, which you will find in the Moralia, Volume 5 in the Loeb edition, which is now in the public domain if you want to check it out online, and incidentally we'll be quoting from the translation of the Loeb edition in this episode. This work is addressed to a woman called Clea, a priestess and, we assume, a woman with a similar philosophic hermeneutic to Plutarch. He also composed another work on the bravery of women for her. We learn that Clea is the head of the inspired Delphic maidens, and that she's been consecrated by her parents in the rites of Osiris. So we can imagine a Delphic priestess of one sort or another, and perhaps even one of Egyptian descent, or at least one whose parents were into the Egyptian religion. The text of the work comes down to us in a fairly corrupt state, but it's at least complete. So we have the beginning and the end, which we can't say for all of Plutarch's work. So even if we don't know what Plutarch wrote in every single case, we have a pretty good idea of the general gist of the work. And what a work it is. The central exegetical framework for the essay is the Egyptian myth centered around Osiris, Isis, and Set. How they were born, how they all got married and such, and then the rather violent series of events leading to the current state of Egyptian religion in Plutarch's time, with Isis as a supremely important goddess associated with wisdom, but also with marriage and fertility, Osiris as god of the dead, dwelling in the other world, Typhon, or Set, as this sort of dark adversary figure, and Horus, the son of Isis and Osiris, as the avenger of his father, who defeated Typhon, setting up the reign of the Egyptian gods on a proper footing. Now having said all this, and before we get into the material, a few caveats are in order. Firstly, how much did Plutarch actually know about Egyptian religion? Scholars argue about this. We know Plutarch visited Egypt, but this doesn't tell us that much. In some ways, It's obvious that he's viewing the Egyptian religion through a Greek lens. The temple cult of Isis involves mysteries, mysteria, which is just a Greek concept. And of course, the usual equivalencies between gods and goddesses, known as the interpretatio graica, or Greek hermeneutics, are in full effect. So Plutarch talks about Isis and Osiris using their Egyptian names, and discusses several possible identifications for these deities from the Greek canon, showing how fluid this kind of Greek interpretation was. But other gods in the story are only given Greek names. Hermes, for example, appears. No doubt the Egyptian god Thoth is meant, 
but the name Thoth never appears. Similarly, Set is known as Typhon, who in the Greek context was originally a sort of primordial chaos monster who fights with Zeus. Not really a very good equivalence to do justice for the complexities of the Egyptian god Set. So we have to be aware of these Greek assumptions lying behind Plutarch's take on this foreign material. He's Greekifying it in many ways. Secondly, there were many, many religious traditions in Egypt. So we must not think that the version of the Isis and Osiris myth known to Plutarch was the only one in circulation. Indeed, he alludes to many variants in the course of the discussion, nor that every Egyptian religious institution even had an Isis and Osiris myth. Insofar as Plutarch is preserving a genuine Egyptian story, it is not the genuine Egyptian story, but one among many. Presumably, his interest in this myth in particular owes something to the fact that Isis was so popular outside of Egypt. And as we'll see later in the podcast, she becomes in essence a Roman goddess with a widespread cult throughout the empire. But it also does reflect the prominence of this myth or myth cycle in Egyptian culture, which was genuine. So prominent in Egyptian religion, but not universal. And we also know that the Egyptians told many variant versions of this story. However, thirdly, despite all these valid cautionary notes, the fact remains that Egyptologists find Plutarch's account of the Isis and Osiris story hugely useful for interpreting Egyptian materials. It fills in a lot of blanks. So, it is a precious document for reconstructing ancient Egyptian religious cult, even though it has to be used with great circumspection. More on the subject in the recommended reading section of the notes to this episode. Anyway, our chief concern here is with the story of Western esotericism, and for our purposes, Greek interpretations or misinterpretations of Egyptian material are in fact the primary sources. The Egyptians exist in Western esotericism primarily as a kind of image of wise, ancient, but also inscrutable and sometimes dangerous fictions. In episodes 8 and 9, we looked at the imaginary relationships between the ancient Greeks and their Near Eastern and Egyptian neighbors, or elders, as the Greeks tended to conceive of them as being. On Isis and Osiris is one chapter in the very long and complex story of the development of Orientalist fascination with the ancient Egyptians, whatever relationship it has to what the Egyptians were actually doing in their temples. And we should remember, above all, that by Plutarch's time, what the Egyptians were actually doing in their temples had changed a lot from the Middle Kingdom, and no doubt involved a lot of influence from Greeks, the Greek invaders, the Hellenistic kings who had ruled Egypt for centuries, and later from the Roman overlords. So, Plutarch's book begins with a long prelude in which he discusses the importance of what he takes to be the religion of the Egyptians. That is, the mysteries of Isis and Osiris, which are mapped onto the temple cult of Isis and Osiris in Egypt, as Plutarch understands it. The riches of philosophical wisdom, which can be found concealed within this temple cult, and a host of other interesting stuff. But for the purposes of this episode, I'd like to go straight to the myth, as Plutarch narrates it, and then return to the extraordinary way in which he interprets it. But before we do that, let's have a quick look at the sorts of people, the initiates, who are worthy to hear this story. Now we're going to quote from 352b of On Isis and Osiris, talking about Isis and what Greek goddesses she might correspond to. Quote, 
Moreover, many writers have held her to be the daughter of Hermes, and many others the daughter of Prometheus, because of the belief that Prometheus is the discoverer of wisdom and forethought, and Hermes the inventor of grammar and music. For this reason, they call the first of the muses at Hermopolis Isis, as well as Justice. For she is wise, as I have said, and discloses the divine mysteries to those who truly and justly have the name of bearers of the sacred vessels and wearers of the sacred robes. These are they who within their own soul, as though within a casket, bear the sacred writings about the gods, clear of all superstition and pedantry, and they cloak them with secrecy, thus giving intimation, some dark and shadowy, some clear and bright, of their concepts about the gods, intimations of the same sort as are clearly evidenced in the wearing of the sacred garb. For this reason, too, the fact that the deceased votaries of Isis are decked with these garments is a sign that their sacred writings accompany them, and that they pass to the other world possessed of these, and of naught else. It is a fact, Clea, that having a beard and wearing a coarse cloak does not make philosophers, nor does dressing in linen and shaving the hair make votaries of Isis. But the true votary of Isis is he who, when he has legitimately received what is set forth in the ceremonies connected with these gods, uses reason in investigating and in studying the truth contained therein. End of quote. So, we see here a picture of the proper religious person conflated with the proper philosopher. The proper religious person is A. Esoteric and B. Not superstitious. Plutarch wrote a treatise on Daisy Demonia, uh, superstition, which you can check out for more information on exactly what he means by superstition. The esotericism is embodied in the Egyptian priests' very way of life. Quote, they cloak them with secrecy, thus giving intimations, some dark and shadowy, some clear and bright, of their concepts about the gods, intimations of the same sort as are clearly evidenced in the wearing of the sacred garb. So, their whole religion has some more, some less esoteric messages hidden within it, and even the clothes they wear, the ceremonial vestments, have an esoteric message to tell. So, anyone who's listening to this podcast who does not match this description, point for point, of the proper religious and philosophic attitude toward a sacred discourse like the myth of Isis and Osiris, please stop listening now. Still here? All right then. The Heros Logos, the cultic myth of Isis and Osiris goes something like this. In the beginning, Rhea and Kronos got it on. Now these are the names of two of the Titans from Greek mythology. The Titans were the generation of gods who came before the Olympians, whom we all know. So for Rhea and Kronos, we can probably read the Earth and the Egyptian god Geb. Now, the sun became aware of this liaison between Rhea and Kronos and didn't approve, so he cursed Rhea so that she couldn't bear children in any month or any year. Hermes, yes him, that would be the Egyptian god also known to the Greeks as Thoth, then fell in love with Rhea and wanted to help her out, so in a bout of gambling with the moon, he won the 70th part of each lunar cycle from the moon with which he fashioned an extra five days, which were then added to the calendar. So the 360-day calendar became a 365-day solar year. 
Now, this calendar of 365 days was known in antiquity as the Egyptian calendar and widely used outside of Egypt because it was pretty accurate. This calendar came about, we now know, through a gambling match between Hermes and the moon, and these five intercalary days allowed Rhea to avoid the curse and give birth to some children. Incidentally, I like how the sun and moon are characters here, which I suspect is an echo of the ancient attempts to square solar and lunar calendars and try to figure out how they match up. And I also like the fact that the Egyptian Tolt shows the same tricky side as the Greek Hermes. I think it's safe to assume that the game was rigged when he beat the moon at gambling. Now, five days for five children. Rhea gives birth to Osiris Arueris, whom Plutarch equates with Apollo and also calls the Elder Horus. Typhon, who bursts forth in typically aggressive fashion. Isis and Nephthys, a goddess also known as Aphrodite or Teleute or Nike in Greek. Nephthys will later go on to marry Typhon and give birth to Anubis, he of the jackal head. Plutarch then reports a variant on the myth. We're told that Isis and Osiris were already at it in the womb, and some say that Arueris was born of that union. So the exact lineage of that particular god is disputed. We should also mention that Isis and Osiris later have a child after they're born, Horus. But Plutarch doesn't tell us about Horus's birth. Horus will just show up on the scene later in the narration. So Plutarch then fast forwards. We see Osiris as king of Egypt. Seemingly the gods are living on earth and humans and gods are consorting freely. So this is a golden age. Osiris does lots of culture hero stuff. He civilizes the world and teaches arts and sciences to humanity. Plutarch here finds a fanciful correspondence. Osiris's rule was ideal. He didn't go around conquering folk, but instead used persuasion and even music to convince everyone to follow him as king. And this is why the Greeks consider him a form of Dionysus, who is also associated with pleasant music and so forth. We think it is more likely that the Greeks saw Osiris and Dionysus as equivalent because they're both gods who die and are then resurrected. But anyway, that's not the point Plutarch makes here. Plutarch will get deep into all the possible connections between Osiris and Dionysus from 360a onward, after the myth has been told. And it's clear that he wants to make this connection, not only based on cultic similarities and so on, but because of his view that the rites of Osiris are mysteries, like the mysteries of Dionysus with which he is familiar. Behind this passage in the myth, we have an Egyptian story of Golden Age, but Plutarch quickly skips ahead to where things get nasty. So Typhon hates Osiris and wants to become king in his place. So he secretly measures him and then has a beautiful chest constructed to the exact size specifications of Osiris. It's a truly gorgeous piece of work. And Typhon says whoever fits in it exactly can keep it. So everyone tries Cinderella style. But of course, only Osiris fits exactly. But in his moment of triumph, Typhon slams the lid down, and he and his unnamed allies throw the chest into the Nile, and it drifts off and is lost. It ends up washing up on shore in a clump of a plant called Ereike. The Loeb translation has heather here, but I find it very difficult to envision heather growing in Egypt, but never mind. Anyway, Isis seeks the chest everywhere, eventually finds it in this clump, but Osiris is dead. So... 
she hides the chest with his body in it with the help of their son, Horus, and is very sad. Then, however, Typhon finds the body, and this time he decides to make a proper job of it, so he chops Osiris's body up into 14 pieces and scatters them all around Egypt. Isis gets in a papyrus boat and sails around seeking them out, and here we find in the myth a lot of material about how all the different bits of Osiris ended up at different places in Egypt, which now have shrines or tombs of Osiris. So there's a cultic origins myth interwoven with the narrative here. And she finds all the bits of Osiris, except Osiris's penis, which has been eaten by fish. Plutarch names the guilty fish, and this myth explains why the Egyptians don't eat those particular species to this day. So Isis makes Osiris an artificial penis, thus inventing the sex toy, which maybe makes Isis even a greater cultural hero than Osiris. Here, Plutarch again sort of leaves out what happens next. And the next we hear of Osiris, he is communicating with Horus from the other world. In other words, Osiris has died, but now with Isis's help, he's alive again only now he's alive in the realm of the dead. And as we know, Osiris is the deity of the dead, par excellence in Egyptian myth. If you see a mummy-looking character with a green face standing in judgment over deceased Egyptians, that's Osiris. But he is also alive in some way. Jumping ahead, we later hear that Isis and Osiris can still have sex across the boundaries between the worlds, and they will go on to have a younger child, the god Harpocrates. But meanwhile, here in Egypt, Horus has to avenge his father, which he does in three separate battles with Typhon, each of which he eventually wins. And finally, he kills Typhon. Now, Plutarch kind of rushes through this bit of the myth, but you can sense that these battles and the events after Osiris's death and rebirth as a whole were a major part of the story, but Plutarch's just not particularly interested in it. Typhon is dead, Horus is the new king, the crowned and conquering child, if you will, and we can all get on with being Egyptians. However, Plutarch will later insist that Typhon isn't truly dead, just severely reduced in power. This is because, as we will see, Typhon stands for the evil soul of the universe, which Plutarch thinks is a subordinate but ineradicable element of irrationality in the cosmic order, which can never truly be wiped out. So there you have a summary of the myth as Plutarch tells it. We've seen that there's calendrical material at the beginning, which Plutarch doesn't explain, just reports the story. And later, lots of geographical detail connecting the myth with the landscape of Egypt, which Plutarch reports and interprets kind of historically in normal Greek fashion. So Osiris's leg washed up in such a city, hence the city is called Osiris Legopolis to this day, that sort of thing. But there is so much more to what Plutarch does with this myth interpretively, and he doesn't stick to the myth. Once he's finished his account of it, which lasts from Stephanus pages 355d to 358e, the text goes all the way to 384c, with a long, wandering discussion of the meanings hidden within the myth, but also relevant lore from Egypt more generally, references to Greek philosophers of various stripes, including the Pythagoreans, Heraclitus, Empedocles, Plato, of course, and the Stoics. And he even throws in a discussion of contemporary Zoroastrian religion, also interpreted philosophically, astrological traditions, quotations from Hesiod, Homer, and other poets, criticism 
of other Greek interpreters of Egyptian myth, and a whole host of other stuff. So listeners are advised to check out this treasure trove for themselves. But we can maybe put some artificial order to this chaos in the interests of the historiography of Western esotericism. So let's look at a kind of schematized version of the interpretive methodologies that Plutarch uses to tease meanings out of this myth. This is especially interesting, as in this work, Plutarch actually reflects on the possible modes of esoteric reading available to readers in his day and age. And most fascinatingly, he rejects none of them. So there are multiple levels of interpretation of the myth possible, and each one tells us something of value. So we'll talk a bit about these levels, then get to some reflections on the significance of all this for Western esotericism and for the theory of an esoteric interpretation, and one or two other points of interest. So first of all, Plutarch indulges in esoteric etymologies in On Isis and Osiris. Scientists working in the field of linguistics will want to stop listening now, or maybe they'll want to listen extra closely. Um, the Egyptian names of the gods we learn are actually Greek. So the name Isis is connected with the Greek verb oida, to know. She is a wisdom goddess, so she's all about knowing. Typhon's name comes from the Greek verb tufo, to puff up, because he's arrogant and puffed up. Osiris's name is a fusion of hosion and hieron, sacred and holy, or words to that effect. But this mixture itself conceals Platonist philosophic notions. The name of Serapis, a very important god of Egyptian Hellenistic origin, or at least he rose to prominence in the Hellenistic period, who doesn't feature at all in the myth, is just brought in because it's cool, um, and he's connected to the verb syro, to sweep, because he puts the universe in order. So Plutarch is straining a little bit with that one. So hidden philosophic meanings based on a very literalistic reading of Plato's Kratilus and the kinds of etymologies that are featured there. We note that multiple etymologies can be applied to the same name. So Isis is also connected to the verb hiesthai, uh, related to both hastening and to understanding, because, well, she hastens to understand. So Methodologically, we have a total equivalency assumed between languages. These words are Greek, but they're Egyptian, but they're Greek. You can kind of flip back and forth between them. Something very familiar to uh, specialists in esotericism. We see it all the time, even in modern movements. And one single word can have multiple root meanings. So pansemioticism at its finest. For the concept of pansemioticism, see episode 57 of the podcast. We also find a few arithmological passages with astronomical elements to them, bringing the inevitable references to the Pythagoreans. So, these are interesting little esoteric hermeneutic details of the work. This isn't even Plutarch's primary interpretive lens. This he actually sets out for us in a long passage where he specifies four or maybe five distinct but complementary possible levels of reading. The first possible level at which you might read a text like the Isis and Osiris myth is according to Eohimerist rules of interpretation. Eohimerus of Messini was a 3rd or maybe 4th century BCE Greek writer whose basic thesis was that all the tales told about gods, and especially culture hero gods like Osiris, 
were sort of collective memory of great men and kings who'd actually lived in the past and then had later been reimagined as gods. So Plutarch considers this methodology, expounds the myth a little bit in this vein, considering Osiris as an ancient king and so on, but then decides that a second interpretive level is actually better. This is the daimonic level. According to this hermeneutic, these myths tell the stories of actual daimones, intermediate beings between gods and men. Daimones, unlike gods and like humans, have a choice between doing good and evil in Plutarch's thought. And so there's a sort of possibility for genuine drama in a story about a daimon, unlike a story about gods who, to Plutarch and Platonists in general, tend to be rather static and above all the sordid details of everyday life. So Isis and Osiris, it seems, were particularly good daimones. So good, in fact, that they were eventually promoted to the status of gods after all their great deeds, like Dionysus and Heracles from the Greek traditions. So this level of interpretation allows us to preserve the decorum of the gods, proper, the high gods, while still believing all the stories of interventions and drama we find in myths. So far, so good. Plutarch now turns to a third level of interpretation, which I'll call the physical level, where the gods stand for different physical realities. So he gives as an example the classic Greek equivalency of chronos, standing for chronos, or time, hera, standing for air, air in Greek, and so on. Here we see esoteric etymology at work, playing on the sounds of the different gods' names and their similarities to uh, physical principles, but it doesn't have to be this sort of etymological game. You can also say things like Zeus stands for light, this sort of thing. According to this hermeneutic, Osiris represents life-giving moisture, Typhon represents the salt sea and also the power of drought, so dryness, even though it's not immediately intuitive that the sea is dry, um, the Egyptians maybe thought it was in the sense that it wasn't life-giving like the waters of the Nile. Isis represents the fecundity of nature, and so on and so forth. Now in this section, Plutarch gets seriously in-depth about the physics behind the whole thing, and he devotes a lot of time to expounding how different details in the myth tell us all sorts of important things about physics and the natural world. He overtly compares this method to the kind of reading done by the Stoics. But although he's fairly dismissive of Stoic reading methodologies in other works, here he actually gives them a hearing and spends a lot of time doing this sort of reading. He also moves here into some arithmological, calendrical thoughts about the stellar movements, eclipses, and such, where he of course evokes the Pythagoreans, but this is all based on exegesis of the Isis and Osiris myth. Finally, however, he turns to the really good stuff, the Plutarchian Platonist reading. And here we find the deepest register of the myth. There is, as we mentioned in the previous episode, more than one primary soul in the universe for Plutarch. A good, rational soul, which was used to fashion the heavens and so forth, but also a lesser soul, prone to error and even to evil, which interferes with the perfect working of the rational soul here in the cosmos. This dualist cosmology leads to some reflections on Zoroastrian belief, which leads in turn to some discussion of Chaldean astrological teachings. Then we return to the principal actors in the myth and learn that Osiris stands for the divine nous and logos, the supreme principle of rationality in the universe associated with the world of forms. 
Typhon is the irrational soul, and Isis is the receptacle of Plato's Timaeus 49a and 51a, the feminine principle of reception, which always seeks to embody the perfect archetypes of the noetic. This is the principle that many uh, later Platonists would associate with the concept of matter, which actually was invented by Aristotle, seemingly. But um, Plutarch doesn't really get into matter. He talks about this feminine receptacle principle, just like Plato does in the Timaeus. And Horus, of course, is the visible cosmos, the result of the union of noetic archetype and receptacle. So this is Plato's Timaeus, as read by later Platonism, 101. This is the basic story, but with Egyptian gods mapped onto it, and with an evil soul thrown into the mix. The myth of Isis and Osiris is in fact an account of the generation of the cosmos from the union of the noetic archetypes, the world of forms, with the receptacle. Now, firstly, how do all these levels of interpretation work together? And secondly, what makes it all esoteric? Well, we can answer the first question by saying, they just do. Plutarch looks at all these, perhaps to us, very different ways of reading, and while he sort of rates them as progressively better and better, with the metaphysical Platonist dualism of the final level clearly being the supreme meaning of the Egyptian theology, all of the levels have validity and tell us important truths. So none are rejected, not even the Eohemerist level. There are some Egyptian stories which are to be rejected. At 358e, Plutarch mentions that the dismemberment of Horus and the decapitation of Isis, for example, are to be edited out. So he says, we're not, we, we've taken that out, it's just, it's just horrible and obviously not appropriate to people of our philosophic understanding. So there is this process of editing involved. You first have to establish the right esoteric text before you start interpreting. And obviously we cannot have Isis being decapitated, or at least this is obvious to Plutarch. But once the text is established, you can run with it in multiple ways simultaneously. So as with Philo, we're dealing here with a truly polysemous, perhaps infinite, interpretive depth. The myth simultaneously tells us about history, about daimones, about the physics of the cosmos, and about the metaphysics, which lead to the cosmos's existence in the first place. Nice. So, what makes all this esoteric? Well, we addressed the basics of Plutarch's perennialism in the last episode, and actually cited the On Isis and Osiris quite a bit there, so we don't want to go over all that again, but we will say that the perennial tradition constructed by Plutarch in this work is deeply esoteric, in that it conveys the most inaccessible elite levels of knowledge allegedly only to initiates in the religion of Isis. Numerous references to doctrines known only to initiates dot the work, indicating not only the myth, but the rituals of initiation into the temple cult of Isis and Osiris were being read by Plutarch here. So sometimes he actually keeps these rituals secret, merely flagging them in an act of esoteric public secrecy, saying, those who are initiated will know what I'm talking about. But anyway, moving on, but other times he points out that they are initiated secrets and then goes ahead and lays them out for us to some degree. We have a particularly beautiful statement about Isis and her esoteric nature in our text. So let's read from 361 D to E on Isis. Quote, the Avenger, the sister and wife of Osiris, after she had quenched and suppressed the madness and fury of Typhon, 
was not indifferent to the contests and struggles which she had endured, nor to her own wanderings, nor to her manifold deeds of wisdom and many feats of bravery, nor would she accept oblivion and silence for them, but she intermingled in the most holy rites, portrayals and suggestions and representations of her experiences at that time, and sanctified them, both as a lesson in godliness and an encouragement for men and women who find themselves in the clutch of like calamities. So, Isis herself founded the Mysteries of Isis to commemorate her trials and triumphs. As we mentioned last episode, Plutarch sees the gods as, in some cases, esotericists, as, for example, when they send um, cryptic oracles. If we read this passage we've just looked at in tandem with the one quoted earlier in this episode, where the messages of the mysteries of Isis are cloaked, quote, with secrecy, thus giving intimations, some dark and shadowy, some clear and bright, of their concepts about the gods, end of quote, we can really put our finger on the pulse of what's going on here vis-a-vis esotericism. Isis herself founded her own rites, and she did so, varying between open and esoteric modes of exposition, doubtless to keep the really important stuff from the eyes and ears of the profane, that for which they were unsuited to hear and see. The picture Plutarch paints of Isis as a goddess of wisdom and knowledge is particularly interesting in this context, and one can look, for example, at Pierre Ado's book, Le Voile d'Isis, for the rich tradition of Isis standing for nature, who, as we know from Heraclitus, loves to hide wisdom and knowledge, but hidden wisdom and knowledge. This is what Isis is all about. She's a dynamic embodiment of nature as esoteric subject, nature concealing herself from the casual gaze, but revealing herself to the initiated probing of the adept. And in fact, on Isis and Osiris is a locus classicus, that's a fancy way of saying, a very early occurrence of the veil of Isis theme, which is a very powerful image in Western esotericism. Plutarch tells us that the statue of Athena at Sais, and particularly alert listeners will remember Sais as the region of Egypt featured in the frame narrative to Plato's Atlantis myth as a kind of sister region to Athens. So this statue of Athena at Sais, which they take to be a statue of Isis, so we have Athena Isis here, bears the inscription, quote, I am all that has been and is and shall be, and my robe no mortal has yet uncovered. We love this essay of Plutarch's, and much more could be said about it, but it's time to wrap things up, and you can't really top the locus classicus of the Veil of Isis theme. Turning to the Nachleben, the fate of Plutarch's on Isis and Osiris in later esotericism, we don't have time to go into it in all its complexity because it's a huge subject. But rest assured, the on Isis and Osiris will reoccur many, many times in the history of Western esotericism, and we'll be sure to mention it when it does. Right now, though, I think it's a good idea to point out three kind of obvious realms in which this text was important to later thinkers. Firstly, it preserved the Isis and Osiris myth, or one version thereof. No one could read ancient Egyptian from late antiquity until the development of modern Egyptology, the Rosetta Stone and all that whole business. Thus, almost every scrap of Egyptian religion was totally lost until the 19th century. The material preserved by Plutarch is the sole major exception to this rule. In other words, Plutarch's On Isis and Osiris for most of European history was 
all we knew about Egyptian religion. Secondly, this essay outlined a whole range of esoteric ways of reading by which a text of one kind, on the surface a polytheistic Egyptian myth, could be read into a text of another kind, a dualistic Platonist metaphysical account, for example. So Plutarch here set an example of how wild texts could be domesticated. If you put yourself into the shoes, say, of a Renaissance esoteric Christian, fascinated by Plato and the ancient tradition about Orpheus and so forth, but looking for a way that this stuff could be brought into the fold of the church and, as it were, depaganized, well, look no further. Plutarch lays out a number of promising hermeneutical approaches to a text which can accomplish this for you. Hence, this text was very, very important for later reading and misreading and rereading and transformation of earlier ideas into new ideas in an esoteric context. Thirdly and lastly, acute listeners steeped in modern occultism will have pricked up their ears at the reference earlier in this episode to Horus as the crowned and conquering child. This is, of course, a reference to the work of Aleister Crowley, whose adoption of the Egyptian gods was especially relevant to the strand of his thought known as Thelema. Well, Crowley's access to the ancient Egyptian religion was not limited to Plutarch. By his time, we had the early classics of Egyptology, like E.A. Wallace Budge to draw on. But Plutarch's account did play a huge role here in what we might call modern occultist appropriation of Egyptian religion. More on these specifics much later in our historical narrative. So, in this episode, we have marveled at what Plutarch could do with a good Egyptian myth. But Plutarch was not just content to sit in the interpreter's chair. He wrote his own myths, and they are esoteric, psychedelic, and downright fascinating. Best of all, they all recount journeys of the soul through the other world, which may or may not be located in the heavens above our heads. These materials are much less well-known than the Anisinus and Osiris, so we're especially excited to be exploring them here on the podcast. Join us next time for some space travel in Plutarch's Myths of Cosmic Ascent, until which time, keep your hands away from that veil of Isis and stay esoteric. Mm-hmm.